Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways, the show that tackles a tough topic. An interesting topic today, I think, and that is a kind of a continuation of some of our topics that we've had before when it comes to trauma and childhood trauma. And um, today we're talking a little bit more about the ACE study. Of course, we had Dr. Vincent Felitti on the show a couple months ago to talk about this um, landmark study and just absolutely, um, um, I think, uh, amazing study that that has taken way too long for people to embrace. But we're also talking about the neurobiology of trauma, the betrayal, uh, what betrayal trauma is, which uh, is a particular kind of trauma. And we're also going to talk about a project called Protect the Innocent that kind of pulls it all together. My guests right now are Shannon Tyson-Poletti, MD, Dr. Tyson-Poletti. Welcome. Shall I call you Shannon? That's fine. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you for joining us. And Marilee McLean, who has uh, been on the show before, Marilee, who is an uh, an advocate. I can come up, you know, I can read your bios, but I think it would be more interesting. Marilee, how can you describe yourself and the work that you do in two sentences? Two sentences. <laughs> well, I, I know that's the last tough, isn't it? five years <laughs> working on this issue. It's, uh, I deal with child advocacy mainly. Uh, with protected mothers that are trying to protect their children from abuse and are caught up in our court system. And I work on that daily, and I work with an organization called Fight Back Foundation, and I'm the director of outreach there. But I'm also an author and national speaker and um, domestic violence expert, and I spend a lot of time on this, and I'm happy to be on your show, Heather. Well, thank you, and so happy to have you come back. I, I must confess that Mary Lee is kind of my go-to person. Every now and then she'll get a desperate phone call from me saying, I need somebody who can talk about such and such, and <laughs> she always manages to come through. Shannon, uh, this is a first uh, introduction for you and, and uh, me, but what brought you to this topic? What I, I assume that your medical background um, is pretty extensive, but how would you describe what you do and well, how you came to this topic, the neurobiology of trauma? Um, uh, can you do that in a couple sentences? I can try. Um, <laughs> I have been a psychiatrist for, yeah, for a long number of years, and, um, you know, about seven or eight years ago, started understanding and and reading more about the neurobiology of trauma, um, the effects of trauma in patients, um, and started understanding my patients in a different way, um, and started really understanding uh, treatment-resistant depression and anxiety in a different way, um, and really then started getting trauma histories from my patients. Um, And as part of that, you know, I've had the pleasure of being the assistant medical director Jefferson Center, and one of my duties is integrated care, so I set up um, centers that basically have both psychiatry, mental health, behavioral health services, and primary care services. Um, And I think that 
that really nicely dovetails with trauma and the neurobiology of trauma because that's so often seen in primary care and also gives us an opportunity for prevention in primary care. Well, I think that in my experience, the trauma that we see with domestic violence, with child abuse, is different from some of the other traumas. We hear a lot of people talking about the trauma of school shootings, for example, or um, regular trauma. My daughter just got done buying a house, her first house, and that's trauma. You know, I mean, that's a, a, it really is, a, you know, to try and negotiate that process. But what we see, you can't get through life without some trauma. You can't get through childhood without some trauma. But there's trauma and there's trauma. And in my opinion, what we see with child abuse, domestic violence, um, that's a whole different kind of trauma. Is that your experience as well? Yes, it is my experience. You know, this is really um, complex trauma, and there's been a lot of um, studies and a lot of information on complex trauma, that when a child is traumatized on an ongoing basis, when they're abused on an ongoing basis, it actually changes the brain in many different ways. Um, It changes the parts of the brain that focus on attention and concentration and impulsivity, it changes your frontal lobe, which is your thinking centers. Your amygdala, which are your emotional centers, are often um, upregulated or more active. So you're more emotional and you're more impulsive. So you're less likely to be able to control the, that emotionality. Um, and you're also less likely to think through problems. Your ability to actually um, to, to handle information coming in changes so that you can learn information that's related to the trauma, but you don't learn information that's routine or road information that you would learn normally in a school setting. I think one of the things that I also would add, uh, hopefully I'm correct on this, is memory. Memory is affected by this, is it not? Yes. Yes. Um, Memory, the way you store memory is affected and the way you retrieve memory is affected. And so your hippocampus, which actually focuses on um, verbal memory and sorts through your memory. So I kind of like to think of it a little bit like a Google search. So what comes up first for you when you you see something or when an idea is triggered um, is affected. So your hippocampus is actually shrunk. So your ability to remember and your ability to sort through memories shrinks. I saw, uh, I don't know, somewhere on Facebook, a poster somewhere, I saw, um, what do they call the scans, the thermographic scans of brains where you can see the Mm -hmm. colors of active areas Mm -hmm. and inactive areas. Mm -hmm. And one was a scan of a normal brain and one was a scan of a brain um, uh, of a person with PTSD. And the caption Mm -hmm. under that was, that's why I can't just get over it. And, And that's exactly it. You can't just get over it. It takes work to get over it. And and some areas of the brain may never come back. There's actually genetic changes that happen in the brain. So that um, parts of the brain, you know, we think of genes as our set of information that just is given to us from our parents, but that's not completely true because genes are turned on and turned off. And you actually have some genetic changes in your genes that are associated with things like suicidal ideation. Um, and your ability to focus and and, um, and your ability to process stress, and so that those genes are actually um, downregulate downregulate the receptors or decrease the number of receptors that allow you to handle stress. 
it's very fascinating, this whole, and, and it's so intricate. But you can't just get over trauma. It just doesn't go away. And it yet, takes a lot of work. And again, here we, go, here, here we go with my pet peeve. You know, I mean, every, anybody who listens to the show knows, oh, my gosh, here she's going to go again. We live in a culture that doesn't let you um, look at your trauma. We're supposed to let it go, move on, forgive, forget, you know, um, uh, uh, move past it. When your brain, when your whole neurobiology has changed, how are you supposed to just let that go? And isn't there an issue of respect with that? I mean, I, I respect the experience that I, experiences that have shaped me, and yet a lot of them have been bad experiences. But I have to be very careful if I ever mention one of those bad experiences to, uh, you know, depends on who I'm talking to. Because if if my sister and I were raised by a mother who was mentally ill, and when she was alive, she and I would laugh. We'd talk about, remember when mom did such and such, and she and I would laugh. And I made the big mistake of saying something to a friend about, yeah, my mom used to da-da-da-da, and this friend was absolutely horrified. I saw it as something amusing. And I realized right then, oh, gosh, I can't, I can't tell the little funny stories about mom anymore because they're not funny to other people. They're traumatic. <laughs> and this whole notion that somehow or other we have to let that go, that's my past. How do you just let well, that all go? You know? I think you're absolutely right. And, and we don't understand trauma, and we're scared of trauma in other people. And even in mental health, we don't understand trauma. And trauma comes out in so many different ways in people. It can come out as anger. It can come out as sadness. It can come out as anxiety. And people become frustrated with others. You know, even in mental health, again, um, for a long number of years, I saw how we were treating people with trauma. And not just myself, but my organization has decided to do this differently. We've become trauma-informed. And we understand now when someone is triggered and they're reacting in a way that doesn't make sense, that they may be triggered and that may come from a place of trauma. We take a step back to look at the situation um, and we try to be respectful of that person, whether that person is a janitor working in our office or whether that person is a patient. And I think being trauma-informed is really essential for really every system in our society mm-hmm. right now. And I'd like well, to add to that. Um, yeah, Marley, jump in, yes. No, I was just going to say that, you know, one thing that's really prevalent in that is uh, women that have been domestically abused and are in the court system, and they're sitting there, and they've been traumatized, so they're not coming across as well as, say, the perpetrator or the abuser, because they're, and so that's where we have a problem with judges not understanding that trauma, because those women have been triggered, and they go in, and they don't come across quite as well. You know, and Marilyn is exactly right. You know, those areas of the brain that hold the verbal memory and that sort out the memory and allow you to speak intelligently about your trauma and your experience, again, those areas are shrunk. So your ability to speak in a way that's logical diminishes. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had Dr. Karen, uh, Karen Huffer on the show, um, and she runs a program, I think, at John Jay University, called, uh, and she wrote a book called Unlocking Justice, and she um, uh, trains people to advocate for people's, people with disability, including trauma types of disabilities, um, in courts when they go to court. And I read her book, Unlocking Justice, and I think that is the best explanation I ever got 
for what you're talking about, Marilee, about how the experience of trauma, the extended experience with trauma, um, shapes how women present themselves, how they speak, how they can uh, do all of that, and it works against them. And yet there's a biological, physiological, whatever adjective you want to use, uh, reason for that. There's a really good example that Shannon knows about, um, a woman that has PTSD really bad here in Colorado, and she has a really bad case, but for her to go in, she's in criminal court now and, and having to go through a horrible ordeal, but she has PTSD. She's brilliant. She's put together an incredible um, you know, binders of her, her case, and it's very thorough, but for her to get on the stand or for her to speak, she does not come across well because she's so traumatized. Yeah. It's a perfect yeah. example. And it's an education thing. Yeah. yeah. And as you know, Marilee, getting you know, trying to educate the people in court, you know, the the guardians ad litem, oh, the yeah. judges, the lawyers. I mean, that's just oh my gosh. Um, that's that's yeah. a, 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 I can't even say it. Sisyphusian battle. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but I mean, it's a it's a <laughs> really thankless job, and very very tough. So, okay, so I want to try and get back into this, and I, I'm fascinated by that whole neurobiology of trauma. Me too. How is it different, though, Shannon? Um, but if it's trauma, like grandma died or I saw the puppy die or whatever, how is it different when we're talking child abuse and domestic violence? Well, that's really complex trauma or and, and or betrayal trauma. And so complex oh. trauma again, is living in a traumatic situation versus a one-time event. You get these neurobiologic changes. If you don't have neurobiologic changes, your ability to handle a one-time event goes up. You have social supports. You have people around you. You have people reassuring you. You have the system working for you. However, when you have this chronic ongoing system and then the people that are supposed to take care of you betray you, that's when we start to see some of these neurobiologic changes. And actually those people then when faced with a trauma later in life have a higher risk of PTSD from that particular trauma. You can have all kinds of personality um, traits related to this chronic ongoing trauma such as dissociation, um, such as uh, um, chronic health events, the, the ACE studies, we are all very familiar with the ACE studies and those chronic health events that happen, everything from heart disease. And we've known about the connection between psychiatry, mental health, and heart disease for a long, long time. Um, but you have increased risk for heart disease, increased risk for substance use, increased risk for suicidality. And again, some of those are related to the very biologic factors that cause them. So the suicidality we've shown there's actually genetic changes that increase risk, your risk for suicidality. Yeah. Very complicated. And um, I think, you know, we're talking about the ongoing, re- repetitive um, nature of certain traumas, uh, such as child abuse and domestic violence, um, being very different from that one-shot, you know, um, uh, kind of event that causes, a, you know, a, a traumatic reaction. Um, I, I always talk about dog in dog training. I had a dog trainer once who said, when you're trying to train an animal, be a slot machine, not a vending machine. Because that intermittent reinforcement is a much stronger um, tool to use than consistent reinforcement. 
Does that and make sense? Yeah, that's true. So that intermittent, you know, and, and I think when you talk about um, trauma, that's very true, Those that child abuse where there's that hit of abuse going on, that you don't know when it's coming at you. That really changes the child's reaction and that that level of fear associated with it. Mm-hmm. So we've got all of this potential trauma going on. We have all these, you know, potential um, long-term consequences because of complex trauma. Um, what's the net effect of all of that? Um, what what who's doing something about it, and what are they are we able to do about it? You know, I'm really glad you asked that question because there are a lot of systems that are becoming trauma-informed. Um, and so in mental health, many mental health centers throughout the country are becoming trauma-informed and becoming aware of it. And we are teaching our primary care partners in the same thing, or they are on their own are learning about this and choosing to become trauma-informed. And that's you know, one issue that I work with on a constant basis is trying to work with our primary care partners to look at trauma, to look at childhood trauma, to look at prevention. You know, knowing what we know now, we really work on prevention. The court systems, in some cases, are becoming very trauma-informed. Our criminal courts are becoming trauma-informed. Our substance use disorder courts and juvenile courts. Uh, It's my personal opinion that I think a holdout is family court, um, divorce <laughs> let's let Mary Lee jump in and give her opinion on that one. What do you think, <laughs> Mary Lee? Our family courts no, uh, right on board with being trauma informed? <laughs> very much not. No, totally not. And it's it's amazing how much not because we're seeing it every day. And as Heather knows and Shannon, that uh, personally I get calls every day from women all across the nation that are trying to protect their children from child abuse, whether it's sexual abuse or abuse. And um, the courts are awarding custody uh, to these perpetrators or the abusers, and it's just uh, unbelievable. But it is not trauma-informed. They, they do not want to look at the domestic violence or the child abuse. The family court tends to put it to the side and just deal with the best interest of the child, which we know um, that's more able to nurture the relationship with the other parent is the one that gets custody. Obviously, if that woman's been domestically abused or the child has been abused in any way, um, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to nurture that relationship quite as well as the other um, person that is doing the abuse. So in the best interest of the child, we're handing over children every day to the abuser. Well, who is it? We're going to do a whole separate show on this, but there, there's a standard that some states are pushing for, which is previous caretaker or predominant caretaker as one of, mm-hmm. as the basis for determining child custody. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, so many of these um, parents who are awarded abusers who are awarded custody never were really primary caretakers before. They were barely caretakers, and yet for some reason, you know, well, we know what reason, but yeah. they're being well, awarded it seems custody. Weird too. Right, Heather, and the fact that those, piece, that piece of it, that they weren't in that child's life as much before but now want to be in that child's life, that should be a sign, a red flag for that. Yeah. So how come criminal courts seem to be jumping on board but not family courts? What's, what's the glitch? 
Um, no, 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 I just missed it. I probably would answer. <laughs> but anyway, what did you say, Heather? I'm sorry. I, I was Well, uh, sh- we mentioned when we started this conversation that, um, you know, some, some of the criminal, Shannon said some of the criminal courts are starting to come on board with it, you know, and they're starting to become more trauma-informed, but holdout is family court. So why is there a difference? I mean, isn't a court a court? No, I think there's lack of education, whether it's through family court. It, it can come from the attorneys. It can come from the GALs, which is the guardian line of the lawyers for the child. It can come from the psychologists, the social workers. Very much a lack of training on trauma and understanding it. And I don't think maybe, and Shannon can go on to say that, you know, criminal court maybe is getting that, but definitely not going into family court. And I, I guess I really don't have an answer for that, except for I. Personally, what I've seen is the lack of education. Yeah, and yet people have been saying that for 25 years. We need to educate better. We need yep. to educate better. Um, uh, and yet yeah. it's still going on. So let Shannon we'll that. Come on, Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and again, I'm not speaking for my organization here. I'm speaking for myself. But I do think that family courts, um, it's, a, it's the need for a cultural shift. And we know, we know that somewhere along the way in the 80s, things turned. And they turned in a way that was not a healthy turn, where the um, abusers became the victim. And we know, every, you know, we know all of this, the Richard Gardner information, the parental alienation, sure. and things got mm-hmm. twisted. And that's, this is a big boat to turn. Um, it's a set, it's very sad because when we start talking about children's lives, we start talking about children's brains. We talk we start talking about actually changing the genetic makeup of children's brains. Um, yeah. uh, the, for it, our listeners who don't know the Richard Gardner story, Shannon, I want to just say I, uh, Richard Gardner was a. I, I, I suppose he has a, had a medical degree um, uh, as a psychiatrist, but um, he, he never really practiced uh, the way that most most psychiatrists practice. And he made a very lucrative uh, living um, going into courts and testifying. He invented this theory of parental alienation, where the theory thinking was that if uh, a child didn't want to see a parent, the only possible conceivable reason for that is because the other parent was poisoning the child against that parent, and so that first parent would have to be punished severely by losing custody to the other kid. And he had a lot of other bizarre sexual theories, et cetera, et cetera, but the man made a a killing in uh, being an expert witness during the 80s, and that's uh, who we're talking about when we say the Richard Gardner uh, information. It really really, uh, screwed things up for a lot of children. Well, and, it, and that's oh, okay. what's amazing, and that's still being used, Heather. And I find that mm-hmm. I get cases every day that way where PAS is still being used. And he's, you know, way back in the 80s, he was getting paid to testify in these cases. And um, checks were being written to him, and he made, like you said, a lot, a lot of money off of this. And it's not approved yeah. by the AMA or the APA, American Medical Association. Or, or the American Bar Association. Association. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, quite, yeah. yeah. So, um, and he had a lot of other bizarre uh, sexual theories. Uh, he, I believe, started the Man-Boy Love Association, and he ultimately committed suicide. So, you know, as far as any, uh, most people are concerned, he was, he's been completely 
uh, there's nothing legitimate about any of his theories or what he did. And yet, as you pointed out, Marilyn, it's, it's still going on, and people are losing mm-hmm. custody uh, because of it. I talked so, to an attorney the other day, Heather, that said to me, excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt, uh, attorney the other day that said to me uh, he was using PAS. I said, why? And he knows that it's not approved to be used in the courts. And I said, why would you use it? He said, because my client will win. It was all about his client winning, whether children are being well, tossed aside to abuse, but it's about winning. That's that's a pretty sick statement. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But, you know, I mean, anyway, well, well, let's not get hung up on Gardner because that's a whole different show, isn't yeah. it? Um, but yeah. uh, I, I and I also think, and, and I am probably the last living person, the oldest living person that will, I, I uh, proudly identify as a feminist. I really am. And yet I do believe that, um, you know, some of our feminism from, um, the, you know, the 70s uh, set the stage for this. I mean, we were so convinced that fathers could be absolutely equal uh, uh, parents. And because we pushed so hard for that, I think somehow or other it has escaped the fact that they're different, that children, it, they are not interchangeable. Mothers and fathers are not interchangeable. Um, and And yet I think that seems to be the basis for a lot of judicial decisions as well. It doesn't matter whether it's the mother or the father, it's the better parent, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yes. And it does matter. Um, it really does, um, in my opinion, okay? Um, well, you, guys can, you, can, you guys can take umbrage with me if you'd like. <laughs> I think there's also been a lot of studies out there that have said when a father is involved in a child's life, they tend to do better. And you know, mm-hmm. Judith Wallerstein and all of her work showed that. However, there's often not the qualification to um, as to why that. It has to be a involved. good father. It has to be a good right. parent. Not just because you have a penis doesn't make you a good parent. Um, and to that's apply right. that rule to you, um, you know, and and I think that's from what I've seen as a layperson. That's where the courts are getting it wrong. They're thinking that okay, just because you are male, then you automatically are essential to a child's life. Well. You know, not necessarily, um, and and the same thing is true for the for the mother. You know, I mean, if she's a horrible, awful mother, well, then of course, you know, that a child deserves better than that. But um, anyway, okay, that's my rant number two. I've been ranting a lot today. I should have well, I should have and, I should have drunk my and, my soothing mint tea before we started recording. <laughs> well, and I think it's really important to note that you know, generally, fathers who want to be involved and in, are good fathers back in the 70s and 80s and wanted to be good fathers were the ones that showed positive interactions with their children. The ones that were not good fathers generally at that point when those studies were done were not involved in the child's life. And now we're just blankly applying that saying all fathers should be involved rather than, as you said, really look at good fathers should be involved, good parents should be involved, you know, exactly. even good enough parents should be involved, but you know, but bad parents um, do not promote safety and do worsen trauma in these cases. And it Does goes to where we're doing as a bad parent, though. I mean, we all think we're great parents, don't we? Except well, me. No, the, the ones that are bad. Abusive. Let me rephrase that. Abusive parents. Okay, thank you, thank you. (laughs) Okay, well, I hope we didn't take too too strong a a dip here because we did start this conversation by saying, so what are we doing about this? What are we doing to help 
children who have and have been uh, exposed to complex trauma. What are we doing? What are some ideas? What are people doing out there? So one thing that my organization is doing is uh, we have started an integrated family health home. So we have primary care, our primary care partner, which is Metro Community Physician Network, and Jefferson Center, the behavioral health piece, um, together. And we meet regularly about complex patients. We have a behavioral health professional in the MCPN clinic, so they're seeing patients on a regular basis. We're um, screening for depression and for anxiety in all primary caregivers, so that be that mom or grandma or dad, so we can identify early people that may have difficulties. We're, soon we're going to start, after the new year, going to implement doing A screens um, on parents. Um, oh. Yeah, on, on parents, so we can look at at-risk parents and give them more social supports, more um, support to um, more community supports, whatever they need to prevent um, potential abuse because we know of all these neurobiology of trauma changes, right? And we want to well, prevent... Well, yeah, and how do you parent well when you're dealing with, you know, all of the, the uh, you know, I, I think... Um, I think some people are aware that wait a minute, I have some issues here, and is this if I re, my gut reaction to this particular thing is to do this, is that the right thing that I should do for my child? And where do you go to get the answers to that? Right, and so that's what we want to provide them. What are the answers to this? You know, people again might be emotionally more reactive, might be more irritable, might be more anxious or depressed, and so we want to address those things. At, right at first, while they're pregnant with the baby, before the baby's even born. Right. Um, yeah, we're hoping to start some prenatal parenting classes too. And and you know, I've, I've always said we focused so much on breathing during birth, um, <laughs> and the baby's coming out either way, right? No matter what. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's just the <laughs> that's just the easy part. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And so then what do you do with this new this new baby? So we're developing a program that combines birthing and parenting, you know, and parenting through the lifespan so that they start being introduced early on in the child's life to good parenting techniques and good parenting strategies. Often people don't parent well because they weren't parented well. If we're talking about complex trauma and abuse in childhood, um, they're not going to have the tools to parent as well as someone else who was parented better. So it's really important to give the children and the parents those tools. Um, we're looking at doing also um, uh, teen relationship training. So we do that with all of our, our preteens and teens in the clinic. We talk to them about healthy relationships and how to have healthy relationships. That's really important because we know that in terms of domestic violence, the best time to change the course of an abuser's life, of an offender's life, is in that preteen, teenage years, so that they can actually not repeat the patterns of their father or their mother. Mm-hmm. But when we're raised in a, in a family unit, that's all we really know. That and reruns of the Cosby's. I mean, that's that's all we know. And so, 
we haven't learned other techniques, and we might just assume that that's normal and typical. So what you're saying is you're trying to educate people to something different? Right. So we're trying to, to educate teenagers as to how to help you have healthy relationships. What is healthy in a relationship? How do you um, avoid being controlling? How do you choose partners that are healthy? How do you um, communicate? What is healthy communication skills? So we're working on all of those with our teenagers. Um, many of the school systems are doing this already, which I really applaud the school systems. that Many of them have taken this on kind of full force. Um, and we're lucky enough to have uh, RBHP who was trained in the school systems and so knows this information really well. Um, so, yeah, so we have to, I think, teach kids at every level, in the schools, in the homes, mentoring programs. Um, you know, I know you had Casey Gwynn on. He has the Project Hope that's, you know, giving children hope and teaching them a different way through that. There's so many ways to teach them, but I think the more touches we can have on children in terms of healthy relationships and um, changing patterns, the better our society long term. Okay, I'm going to be a devil's advocate here. All of these programs sound wonderful, but for some people, they don't want the neighborhood social service people interfering in their lives, or they might be nervous about it, or I might be an immigrant that's doc not documented, and I don't want these officials um, to have that level of knowledge about my family and what I'm doing. Are you, have you encountered any kind of resistance and, in that way, and uh, is any of it legitimate, and what are you doing about it? You know, th those are good um, points. It's, not, it's about meeting the patient where they're at, and that's why we have a full range of services available. But if they're not ready for that full range of services, we're talking to them in the clinic with the provider, with the pediatrician, with the pediatric nurse practitioner, or with the family practice doc. They can talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, or the behavioral health professional can talk to them one-on-one -on -one about what's available and how they're doing and checking in and teaching them a few skills. Even if we teach them two or three parenting skills, when they're in to see the primary care physician, that gives them two or three skills they may not have had previously. Okay. Marilee, how does this yes. tie in with what's happening in the family court system? Well, you know, I, I'm looking at it, it affects everything. I mean, as far as, the, like we were talking about the teens, having that or the prenatal care, I believe it does start from the beginning. I do believe that, and that's why we have the problems that we have today in our society. But I, I don't know. I mean, there's so many, just like uh, Shannon said, there's a lot of organizations doing the right thing. But how do we get to all the children, and how do we get to our courts effectively understanding what's going on here? And, uh, you know, just absolutely, I think some of it's just common sense. And maybe um, we have to have that common sense. And I don't know how you gain that, but a lot of it is just common sense. And a lot of it is how you're raised, like Shannon said. Some of these kids are coming from, you know, terrible backgrounds, whether it's domestic violence or there's abuse in the home or there's alcohol or whatever. But I don't know how we can get all of them involved in all of this. There's got to be a way. I think, like, the school setting is a good place where they get it at school. And I think that when they get to Shannon's area where they're actually having professionals deal with them, 
Um, I was listening to what you were saying, Heather, to that. How does that affect the family? I always get worried that, um, like with social services, when they get involved, and I know Shannon's nothing like that, but I'm just saying when they do get involved, a lot of cases go haywire. And um, Oh, gosh, yeah. That's, yeah. It's, yeah, well, and, you get, and, and it's and kind of like an evil triumvirate. triumvirate. You get an abuser, yeah. you get social services, child protection, and then you get the court, and that's just, I mean, it it just can be a recipe for disaster. Yeah, well, that definitely, that direction has been. That's what we've seen. And I know that's not what Shannon's talking about, but, but no, no. Um, yeah, I, but that is what is happening. It's not going that direction in order to... Um, you know, I'm trying to think of Casey's name, Casey Gwynn. I mean, I know that, you know, he has his project that he does, but it's not national enough. It's not big enough. That's the problem. None of this is big enough. Well, they just came out with a study. Well, I guess it's been out for a little bit, but uh, we actually had him on the show last week talking about the hope and resilience in teens exposed to trauma and abuse. Oh, yeah. And uh, they're, you know, they're getting some some uh, mileage with that. They're getting some good backers and supporters for that program, and they've done some wonderful stuff. Um, wonderful. We've also had, as I said, Dr. Felitti on the show, and who is uh, just a delightful man, and he talked about the implications and his. his I, if I, I hope I'm not uh, misquoting him, but uh, when I asked him why 30 years, the study's been around for 30 years, it's just now catching fire. Yeah, fire, fire and he right, said, exactly. Yeah, and he said that it seems like educators and um, mental health professionals are now starting to jump on board with that, but there still are these huge holdouts, i.e. the courts, and he said health care as well. You know, traditional family doctors, et cetera, pediatricians, uh, they are not uh, embracing and jumping on board with the findings on the ACE study. Is that what you have seen, Shannon? Yes, and that's part of why we're doing these integrated care clinics. It's not the only reason. I mean, we really want to look at prevention and early intervention in our clients. We want to prevent mental health and mental health problems long-term. It's been interesting. Um, I... Have I speak locally to family practice docs, and often they'll ask me to speak about treatment-resistant depression and anxiety. And invariably I talk about trauma because that's what we see most often. That's what I see most often in my life and in my practice is um, these treatment-resistant depressions and anxiety often have complex trauma or betrayal trauma or both. Um, they're inter- interrelated. They don't want to hear this. They want to hear, I want a pill for this. I want a pill to fix this. Yeah. Um, right. what, I, I've been through all the traditional Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, um, you know, medications. I've even tried the third-line medications and nothing's working. Give me the next one to work. And I tell them it's, this is a long-term process. This is about, you know, the patient learning how to retrain their brain. This is about... Um, you know, doing different things, therapy, EMDR, whatever methods that are out there to actually undo some of those effects of trauma and make their lives more stable. And and they often don't want to hear it. Some of them do. Some of them get it right away. But many of them just want the next pill. Yeah. That's sad. Well, and in That's my, sad to hear. And in my experience, um, when we want, as a culture, we want the bad things to go away. We don't want to talk about the bad things. 
Um, if something bad happens to you and you don't, quote, let it go, well, then, of course, you're just going to keep being and having bad things happening, and it's your own darn fault because you won't let it go and be happy and positive and rainbows and unicorns. But I really believe that uh, part of the process of dealing with trauma is acknowledging it, recognizing how your reactions might be because of your trauma experiences and what's happened to you physiologically because of that trauma, and then being able to rationally figure out a different tactic to take or a different behavior to, to come up with, and that's time-consuming. Sometimes that takes and even, hours, days yeah, to figure ahead. out. And how does one so, do that anyway to Shannon? Because if that trauma is the, tra- the, you know, the complex trauma or the betrayal trauma, a lot of those, as you said, are dissociative. So how does that dissociative person or child get through that? It takes years to get through it because a lot of that hasn't been unlocked in their memory yet. Well, yeah, and, and you it can't does. get over it, it by just saying, okay, I'm just going to think happy thoughts and I'm not going to verbalize any negative thoughts here. I mean, it seems so artificial to me, but if you do verbalize those negative thoughts, then, oh, you're a negative person and, of course, bad things will happen to you because look at that, you know, good things come to you if you think good thoughts and, obviously, the corollary is bad things will come to you if you think bad thoughts. So that's my my layman's interpretation of that, Shannon. Tell me me that I'm wrong. Well, you know, I think... um, I, I think it is frustrating for patients. It's really interesting to me when I have patients come in to my office and they have complex trauma. And, and it's many of my patients. We know that the ACE scores um, are high or elevated on approximately 90% of people in mental health, patients that are seen in mental health centers. And so we know that these patients have complex trauma. These are the ones that have been through everything. They've been through different medications. And so what I often do, because I do um, emergency psychiatry primarily, and I see a lot of new patients that come through the center, and I'll sit down with them and I'll go through my, you know, this is your brain on trauma slide, and I start explaining things to them, and they have this aha moment, like this is my brain. Oh, my gosh, it's not just get over it. It's not just, uh, it's not just, you know, I'm a bad person because I'm irritable my brain can't help it. And so I think sometimes just giving them the education gives them a place to start. And often they're more willing to work. If you say, you know, there's all different kinds of things that that we know work. We know that yoga actually increases hippocampal volumes, long-term practice of yoga. We know that um, certain medications do that. We know EMDR um, improves long-term trauma. We know that dialectic behavior therapy um, changes people's ability to um, react in a situation, and they it teaches how to think logically through a situation rather than just react, get irritable, or get sad, or become anxious. And so we know that there are many different things that work, and there's probably not one right path for everybody, but there are many right paths, but it takes time, and it takes commitment, um, well, and, and it, it takes, takes community. Work. It takes work on the part of the person who has experienced the trauma. And that brings me, again, back to you, Marilee. You've got a a child you've got in court. You've got a a spouse in court. 
you know, and they are dealing with all of this. And yet, as as we've said before in this conversation, uh, you go to court and you have been a victim of trauma, and you're trying to deal with that. You don't just bounce up and act like you're, you know, in in the, the high school play and everything is wonderful. It 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 has an impact on you. So what do we do about all of this? Marilee, tell me about the Protect the Innocent project. Well, the Protect the Innocent project is really we're doing a documentary and what it is, we're going to um use, you know, high profile or psychologists or or people that have been trained in this area, they'll be on the documentary. But as well as show, it's going to use a little bit of my story because I was actually one of these victims of domestic violence and uh, my, my daughter was sexually abused and I couldn't protect her in the courts. So it's going to be about that issue um, to educate what's happening. And then that documentary will go to senators, congressmen, attorneys, doctors. I mean, we're going to get it as many places as we can. And it's not going to be like a film festival kind of documentary. We want to use it as like a credit, like a CLE credit, but it will go into all those areas of legislature everywhere we can put that thing to get education because that is what needs to happen. I mean, they need to actually see how these cases play out and understand it. And then the other thing that we were doing, I, I you didn't mention it, but I'm going to bring it up, is um, Darkness to Light. Um, we're, I'm with Fight Back Foundation, and we're collaborating with them to do that training. So that's another great, the two avenues together, the documentary will do going out to legislators and all these people to understand what's happening, but the education part and the training part is going to be through Darkness to Light, which they have 10,000 facilitators. They're in 17 countries. They're in all 50 states, and going through them to get this done is a great way to do this. So that's two things that I'm working on, and that's Protect the Innocent is mainly to get this out there, to make people aware. Um, I find it amazing, and I know Heather knows this, and possibly Shannon too, is that as long as I've been working on this and and trying to get the media involved, because my opinion is until the media takes this and runs with this, I want the education process there, and I want the Shannons of the world and, and you know Casey, um, Quinn, Gwen, and I always say his name wrong, excuse me, but, but all, you know, Vincent Folletti, all that stuff needs to come in full circle. But really, the only way we're going to get it anywhere with all this issue that's happening rampant and it's causing illness and sickness throughout our nation, it's an epidemic, is to get the media to cover it. And the media is not covering it. So that's what the well, document is and about. You're talking to a woman whose undergraduate degree is in journalism, and I belong to a couple of journalism professions and uh, professional organizations. And one of the things that I have been privileged to do is to provide trainings to different groups of journalists throughout the country. And many journalists are not aware that you need to look or ask different questions or seek different input when you're reporting on gendered violence or child abuse. They just are not aware. So we need to train and target journalists. And, Marilee, you know my number. <laughs> you. <laughs> you know my number, Marilee, okay? <laughs> but, uh, we, yeah, I, you know, I, think, I, well, I, and I think that's so important. It is that these yeah. journalists. I actually did a radio show last week. I think Shannon heard it, and um, it was with um, Seven Ten KNUS with Julie Hayden, and she happened to cover my story way back before CNN covered it. So it would have been in the '90s, I think. Oh no, gosh, it was back in the '80s. So when Richard Gardner was involved, and she covered my case back then, and she said to me, 
when she did the radio show, she brought on one of the old news clippings from Channel 7 News, and it had the cries of my daughter starting out. And I didn't remember, I didn't know that was the one she was going to play. But boy, was that awakening. And I'm thinking, that's the kind of thing that needs to happen every day, in every state, in every city, and nationally, until people, just like the Me Too, hashtag Me Too, they're getting band blasted with it. This is a part of Me Too. This is actually a hashtag Me Too. Wake up society to what's happening to our children and these women that are caught up in domestic violence um, relationships. Yeah, and they are at the mercy of social service, courts, etc. And meanwhile, the children and the victims are dealing with all of this symptomology from complex trauma. It is such a, you know, when we first started our show, when we were talking about doing this, I thought, how, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not able to take the topic of the show and put it into a phrase, and I, I like to do that with my show so that it's very clear what we're doing. And, and this one wasn't just falling into a phrase or two for me. And I think that that exemplifies the whole topic. All of this stuff is tied together, and for so many years, mm-hmm. all of the psychologists have looked at it from this standpoint and not talked with the lawyers, and the lawyers have looked at it from this standpoint and not talked with other, you know. So I think it's endemic when we talk about trauma, the results of trauma, the causes of trauma, and we talk about how that affects children and our, our systems and our family systems. So somebody saved me from my my long monologue here Shannon have I have I summed it up right yeah. and what I, what else can we do I I think you're right on and and again just speaking for myself personally um and having been through divorce court uh the way the way the divorce court thinks is 180 degrees from the way the rest of mental health thinks and I think maybe that wow. You know, and that and that really impacts, influences in a negative way the children going through. You know, when I was going through divorce court, I asked several people, um, friends of mine, about if they knew what parental alienation was. And most people in mental health, I work with 600 other employees in mental health. And so... Everyone I asked, most of them said that no, they did not know what that was. They didn't wow. even, they had never even been taught what that was. Um, yeah. That it was only something that occurred in divorce court. A few people knew it and they said, oh, but it only applies if there re- isn't really abuse. And, in, <laughs> and of course, goodness, how do you find out if there's abuse? You ask the abuser, is there abuse? No. Okay, then I guess this applies. <laughs> right. Exactly. Goodness. And it was it was astounding to me, however, that this is the predominant thinking in divorce court. And so I think, you know, there is a need for change and there is some holdouts. And again, speaking just for myself, not for my organization, but there are some holdouts in our society. Um, and and we're coming around slowly. You know, things are coming around slowly, but they're coming around even more slowly in divorce court. Yeah. yeah. So what do we do about that? Is there, I mean, I know, realize that that's not exactly your bailiwick, Shannon, or you, even yours, Marilee, mm-hmm. but 
but what can we do besides, you know, we come back to the educate, educate. Well, in courts, sometimes yeah. there's no education going on unless the court decides they want to be educated. That's well, a sad part, too, because they don't have to do that training. I found out from nope. the um, the head of uh, the judges' training here in Colorado, um, he told me that they only have to do five hours of training a year. And five hours of training a year wouldn't cover what they need to cover in this, this information. And that's really And sad. even that five-hour requirement, it doesn't, they don't say what, do they, do they get the training no, they do, from a legitimate no, organization or from some non-legitimate exactly. organization? I mean, there's no criteria. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's well, very and, important. and that training has to include all areas of the court. Most of the judges yeah. in Colorado um, are generalists. They don't specialize in any one type of court. So there's hearing criminal cases and family court cases and um, juvenile, well, maybe not juvenile court cases, but they're hearing lots of different types of cases, civil cases. Um, and so that five hours of training includes everything. Right, yeah. and it, and they yeah. rotate every every couple of years. So they really, they need to have the same judges that are trained in this area. If they were trained, I should say, um, stay in that that family court. You know, because that 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 judge could come from a criminal court to family court to civil court, and and you know, and, and change within two years. And most of them yeah. don't want to handle these kind of cases anyway. No. Well, and and we're left with, and I, again, I know I'm generalizing, and I know there are a lot of courts that don't fit this at all, but in my experience, the uh, the courts, the family courts operate under three tenets. One is every child needs his father, which we oh, already boy. discussed. Well, every child needs a good father. If you have a really horrible father, maybe that child doesn't need that so much. Um, so every child needs a father. Just because the father is mean to the mother doesn't mean he's going to be mean to the kids. Uh, yeah, it does, In one, even if it's not directly. And the third one is she lies. I firmly believe that yeah. most courts, and, and they can verbalize so right, or not. Yeah. And you know, what's, what's interesting to me about that um, is that we, we're taught in psychiatry, we're taught in mental health that the biggest predictor of violence is the history of violence. Yep. And so the biggest it makes sense that if you're giving children to somebody who's been abusive, they're at risk for abuse, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. And yet often in, in family court, in divorce court, what I hear and what I've heard uh, is that they don't want to take in the history. They don't, they don't care about the history. They don't care about what's happened in the family in the past. We are moving forward. We're looking forward. That the father says he wants to be a good um, dad, or the father says he's all better now. He took some domestic violence course, and so everything's great. Um, yeah. Without any oversight of that, and I'm not saying that there isn't ability to change, because there is an ability to change, but again, the biggest predictor of violence is the history of violence. And so that really needs to be monitored and there needs to be oversight and there needs to be... Um, Transparency and accountability totally needs yeah. to be there. And that is what we're lacking. Well, Transparency and, and an understanding of how complex trauma makes people behave. Because mm -hmm. I actually, and Marilyn, you, you and I have discussed this, I actually interviewed a family court judge and I said, oh please gosh. tell me what goes through a judge's <laughs> mind in family court when you have two people in front of you. 
one who has no history, documented history, and I specifically said documented, history of domestic violence, and one who does. And she responded to me by saying, well, you have to understand, if that woman is up there and she's frantic and she's clearly not got it all together and he is articulate and he has it together, if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we'll give custody to him. Mm-hmm. Well, she that's said a that. I remember that. lack of understanding about how somebody behaves when they've experienced complex trauma. Mm-hmm. A total mm-hmm. lack and that's of one more thing I want to add to this is, and I, I'm interjecting here, but um, 50-50, that they believe, you know, all these states are passing that law 50-50 for custody, you know, and it sounds great on paper. It does. I mean, yeah, you know, every parent should have 50-50, and that's that's wonderful, but not if that parent is an abuser, and that's what we're yeah. seeing is that they're making these children go to these abusers, and really, when you get in contested custody cases, most of those cases are abuse cases. Like Shannon said earlier, when that father wants, you know, when they have a relationship with the mother and the, and, and the child and they want to make it right, they work that out. But when you get in those contested cuts cases and there's abuse going on and they're awarding these children to the abusers 70% of the time. That is outrageous. More than that. Joan, and, Meyer, and, uh, and, Joan Meyer's study actually came through with almost 80% in certain cases. Right. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that 90% when there's sexual abuse. If there's sexual abuse, yeah. man, those cases are absolutely going to the abuser. So It's amazing. I mean, you know, really ladies, we're going to have to do this again. I would like you to both back where we can have this conversation again because we're just getting going here about this, and we have mm-hmm. about a minute and a half left. So, and I uh, Sharon has a lot more to say. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. then let's let's do an encore, ladies. We'll do an encore um, because okay. this is a topic that we can't cover enough. I mean, it really isn't. And the whole neurobiology of trauma is fascinating in and of itself, Shannon. And and I would love to uh, talk more about that with you. And of course, the you know the whole court thing, Shannon. Thirty seconds. Did I did I completely miss something that you wanted to make sure that we talked about today? Not at all. I think, you know, um, I just appreciate you having me on the program and the opportunity to talk about this because um, it is so important that we have our children with healthy brains. Oh, gosh. I agree. Merrily, anything that I missed that, that we need to get in you here? You didn't in the miss anything, seconds, but I would so. just like to say for the listeners to go to uh, Protect the Innocent, and it's Indiegogo and you can donate there to help get this film out there. So um, that's one thing, and that's it. And I appreciate everybody listening, and I know that this is uh, really a national crime. It's a huge topic, more than we can cover in one hour, but the ladies are going to come back again. We're going to tackle this again. Thank you for joining uh, with us on this topic. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. See you next week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh.